0: Well, in the news this week, a woman from Colorado died after a brief stay in the hospital. She complained of dizziness, nausea, and a severe headache. Her husband, a local dentist, quickly became the primary suspect. When his staff told him that they'd been having marital issues, his business was failing, and he had recently received not one, but three packages in the mail which were marked biohazard. And they were instructed to not open those packages. It was soon discovered that those mysterious packages contained potassium cyanide, which was a deadly poison. Staff quickly googled the symptoms of cyanide poisoning and found they were exactly the same as his wife had been suffering from those very days. The police dug a little deeper and quickly found out that the husband had been having an affair with another woman and apparently planned to murder his wife and start a new life. They found a secret email account documenting his affair, and quickly they realized that yes, he had in fact poisoned his wife, and she passed away this week. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? Except this is the news, except this actually just happened in Colorado in this week. He was arrested and charged with murder, and sadly, in the mix of all this, of course, is all the damage, the fallout of the employees and the business. Him and his wife had six children. And you think to yourself, what in the world? Like, how in the world did, did, did he get to this place that he would do this, that he would think he would get away with it, and that he would do it? Where does it start? Well, church, it starts with desire. It starts with inordinate, out-of-control, off-the-rails desire. And it starts by not being content with your situation." The dentist looked at his failing business, his marriage, and said, I am discontent, and I need to do something about it. And somehow, in his mind, concocted this idea. Discontentment of the heart led to murder. The biblical word for a desire that has gone off the rails and bubbles up from a discontented heart is covetousness. It is coveting something that you don't have and wanting it so much That you might lead yourself to do things as crazy as this. So this week, our last commandment is, in fact, not only a a wrap-up, but really the source of all other sins. This week, you shall not covet. Last week, we looked at the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Essentially, you shall not lie about anything to anyone. We are commanded to tell the truth. We're forbidden from lying We violate the ninth commandment when we speak incorrectly, incompletely, or when we fail to speak when we need to. How do we obey or why do we obey the ninth commandment? We tell the truth because we serve the God of truth. God is the very definition of the word truth. And so as we speak truth, we live lives that reflect our God. And once again, it all comes down to loving others. We love others well by living lives of truth. This week... We land the plane in our Ten Commandments series with the 10th commandment. And once again, we look at God's word in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 17. It says this You shall not covet your neighbor's, your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Lots of words this week. This is not a two-word commandment. There are lots of words in here, and so let's see what we can glean by pulling this apart grammatically. Our word here for covet is the Hebrew word chamad, which means it has a sense of some, again, inordinate or out of order, ungoverned, selfish desire. Basically, a lust that is out of control. Another Hebrew lexicon says that it means to desire something in a way that brings damage to the very thing that you are desiring. Hopefully you're picking up the main thrust again. This word is, is from our hearts. It's a, it's a lust, it's a desire. And we see even in that other lexicon definition that it brings, you love it so much, it's, you desire it so much rather that you actually harm the thing that you are lusting after so much. We see that in the story of our dentist. He's definitely not gonna get to be with that woman. He's gonna be locked up for the rest of his life. And he harms so much around him. This is why in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation, the word here is called epithumeo, which you might remember in our seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. It's where Jesus said, yeah, it's not just checking the box of physical adultery. If you've looked at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her, and her, her in your heart. That's that idea. Same word used here, lustful intent. You see, it's something inside That is out of control. It's eventually going to lead to destruction and the destruction of anyone and anything else around. Coveting changes our perspective. It controls us. One study note put it this way. When a person covets, he allows the desire for that which is coveted to govern his relationship with other people. This may become the motivation for murder, stealing, or lying, either to attain the desired thing or keep it from someone else. Our text gives us a few examples of what they would covet in Old Testament Israel. Spouses, servants, oxen, donkeys, and then the catch-all, or anything that might be your neighbors. And so as we've been doing all along, I want to break up this commandment into two giant buckets, explanation and application. In explanation, let's look at what is forbidden and what is commanded. And what is forbidden is pretty straightforward. We are not to covet. We are forbidden from coveting, meaning we are forbidden from sinfully desiring anything belonging to anyone else. So we can move on to what is commanded soon. But before we do that, I want to point out something very important in this commandment. This commandment is different than all the other commandments. Because all the other commandments have actions. All the other commandments is something you do or do not do. Don't have any other gods don't worship any other gods don't make any idols remember the sabbath honor your parents do not murder do not commit adultery do not steal do not bear false witness but yet look at this commandment this commandment is do not covet covet is a desire covet is not an action you could be coveting and no one would know unless you told them or unless it it bubbled over into an action You can't tell. I might be looking at somebody's house and burning with sinful, covetous desire for it, and you can't tell. If my neighbor is cutting his grass with his sweet, brand-new, shiny, zero turn, he's not going to know that I'm coveting his lawnmower unless I tell him I'm coveting his lawnmower. It's all a desire that's inside. And so we see something very, very important in that. The law of God labels desires as sinful. Sinful. We could sin with our hearts. We could sin with our desires. And so many times that goes against what we think in our brains that sin is an action. Well, yes, sin is an action, but it's also a desire of the heart. We can sin right in our own privacy of our own brains and our own hearts and no one else would know. And so this commandment is targeting the heart. It's not so much targeting an action. Of course, that's where sin comes from. Sinful desires are sinful we are mistaken when we think that sin is just something we do with our external actions this is one of the many errors with legalism right don't do that okay great i won't do that but i can sin in my heart by coveting and we understand that it is something that we can do privately in fact every outward sin starts with an inward sinful desire why did God save this commandment for the last one? Because breaking the all other nine commandments starts with breaking the 10th commandment. If you don't break the 10th commandment, odds are you're not going to break any of the other nine because we just don't wake up and decide to sin. It's something that bubbles us and up, up, up inside us. That's why he saved it for last. As one author called it the mother sin, meaning it gives birth to all the others as outward sin starts inside, in our hearts. In fact, every outward sin starts with an inward sinful desire. Is this in conflict with our modern culture? Absolutely. Our modern culture might just label actions as sinful, even if they said the word sinful, which they wouldn't. We would label actions as good or bad. But our thoughts and our feelings, those are private, those are ours. But the Bible comes against that and says, no, they can be sinful as well. We see this in the area of maybe even of of homosexuality, not only is the act sinful, right? but we split that hair and we say, no, the desire is sinful. Just like Jesus said, no, no, if you desire someone else who's not your spouse, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So we have to be very, very careful in our hearts and in our minds that we're not falling into the trap of sin is just something that I do. So, unique to the Tenth Commandment, we have a desire that is labeled sinful, and that desire is forbidden here. It is sinful to inordinately desire something that isn't yours. And so, by the rule of opposites, we look at what is opposite of this to understand what we're commanded to do. I'll say it this way. We are commanded, then, to respect others and their possessions. We're commanded to respect others and their possessions. If you've gone as far as coveting your neighbor's house, you've already disrespected them. If you are lusting after their spouse, you are disrespecting them. You are dishonoring them. You are sinning against them, especially, church, if they're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And God's law here commanding us to respect and honor one another should be the fence that stops us from coveting what our brother or sister has. And once again, this is not check-the-box Christianity, God isn't looking for us to just hit that lowest level of meets expectations of being a Christian. He calls us to so much more than that. He forbids us from coveting, which therefore that means not only are we not to covet, we're out for our neighbor's best. We're out to honor them. We're out to respect them and all of their possessions. And so let's get practical. Let's move to application. How do we violate and obey this in 2023? Well, I'm glad you asked that obviously we still have houses and spouses today we can still violate this commandment in 2023 america by coveting houses and spouses most of us don't have servants some of us have businesses with lots of employees and we can think wow that guy in his business all those employees just doing whatever he wants them to washing his trucks or whatever we don't have servants we have kids maybe we can use our kids as servants sometimes most of us don't have oxen or donkeys, but I know this is Sussex County, so definitely some of us have oxens and donkeys here, but we certainly have lots of other stuff. A lot of that stuff is generated from our interests, right? And again, it's, it's kind of set on fire by our corporate culture of greed. If you're into hunting, you got to have the latest, greatest bow. I'm going to get in trouble real fast here. Latest, greatest bow. Latest greatest camo, latest, greatest whatever. If you're into music, you gotta have the latest, greatest gear. If you're into cars, if you're into guns, if you're whatever it is, it's interest-based, and you 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 geek out on that stuff. You want the best, you research it, you watch all the YouTube video reviews, and you you go crazy getting the latest and greatest things. As we discussed. When we looked at the 8th commandment, which was, do not steal, what fuels our desire for things when we get to that spot where we might want to steal? It's greed. And our culture fuels greed. It's in the air that we breathe. I mean, springtime has arrived. You go to Home Depot or Lowe's or Bassani or whatever, and you just see it all laid out there. All of the gorgeous lawnmowers out there with easy payment plans. We see all the new cars lined up. We we bust out our covet generators, I mean our iPhones. (laughs) And we go on social media and we see all the things that the other people have and it stirs this up inside us and we say, yes, we need that stuff too. I need the latest, greatest things too. We go on Amazon Prime and we have it delivered to our doors the next day. And remember, our culture fuels coveting. It's all around us. It's called marketing. We see it. And the idea is to create a need. And the need then says we we need to buy this. And we need to buy it now. I am amazed at at all the spam emails that I get. I I don't understand the spam email industry. Do they really think that works? Like, just buy this right now. Okay, thanks. I'm glad you put that in my inbox. I'll go click on that and go buy whatever. No. You just mass delete all of that stuff. But if it's about a book, a theology book, I might click on that, right? And I finally, and Melanie's like, enough books. I'm just like that. But it comes in your inbox, and you're like, yeah, maybe I do need that. Maybe I do need that book. I probably should. I mean, you know, I want to be a good pastor and all. I want want to have all the books. I have a pile of books I haven't read. But it creates that need for us, and we covet, and we pull the trigger. Author Kevin DeYoung provides four ways that we might be coveting if, and I think they're helpful. First, we might be coveting if we've hurt others in order to get more for ourselves. This is the mindset of do whatever it takes to get yours, or you've got to do what you've got to do to take care of yourself, or in business there are no friends. How did you get what you have? Did you cheat in business? Did you lie on your taxes? Did you flat out steal something? Did you take it from someone else? Again, all of those outward sins started with what? Internally coveting. We might be coveting if we've hurt others in order to get more for ourselves. Second, we might be coveting if we are preoccupied with making more and accumulating more. Why do we work? As Christians, it should be to glorify God like anything else in our life. But sometimes, maybe we can fall into that trap of I've got to work, get those extra hours, do whatever, so I can get that whatever. Fill in the blank. Or I've got to... Put it on credit, and I need more income so I can make that payment. Are you preoccupied with making more and accumulating more? Do we buy the lie of our culture that says, again, we have to have the next best thing, the next best boat, car, house, toy, whatever? Are we continuing to look to get more of blank? Third, we might be coveting if we're unwilling to give up what we already have. We've worked really hard to get what we've had. I'm not going to share it with anybody else. The temptation could be to be overly stingy or overly miserly with our things. Our possessions, again, are, are to glorify God, therefore our enjoyment, and to help other people. And if we're overly miserly with them, are we unwilling to give up what we already have? And fourth, and maybe most common, we might be coveting if we're frequently grumbling about our house. Our spouse, our possessions, or the general state of our lives. This is when we look at our neighbors and we start to think, man, look at that. Look at that. Look at that pool and that patio. They get all that money. They don't need that stuff. Man, they're so arrogant. Is that a wet bar that they have out there? The outside kitchen? I mean, come on. They don't need that. Do you grumble under your breath when you see what others... Have? Does it bother you to see other people having those things? Do we suffer from a case of the if onlys? If only I can get X, then I'm going to be happy. If only my bank account gets to X, then I'm going to be happy. If only I could have a better spouse or better kids, or if I could have kids or a spouse to begin with, or if I could have a house, then everything would be good. Then, watch this, then I'd be happy. These are out of order desires, church, and if they're left unchecked, it will lead to outward sin. We've got to keep our desires in check and biblically regulated. So how do we do that? How do we obey? I'm going to give us a few buckets here. We obey this commandment by cultivating thankfulness, trust, and contentment. We obey this commandment by cultivating thankfulness, trust, and contentment. First, to ward off covetousness, cultivate thankfulness in your heart to God. First and foremost, Christians, we need to be thankful of our biggest gift of all, which is our salvation. We just sung about it. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that I'm no longer your enemy, but I'm seated at your table. I've been adopted into your family. I'm an object of your grace, not your wrath. One pastor commented how he was blessed by someone starting a prayer saying, God, thank you that I woke up this morning under your grace and not under your wrath. Think about that. Every day as Christians, as Christians, we wake up not under God's wrath. We wake up under his grace. Before we even get to any physical possessions, what we own, our family, whatever, we cultivate Thankfulness in our hearts to God for salvation. How do we do that? And what are we filling our minds with? We reap what we sow. Are we filling our souls with things that remind us of God's grace and salvation? Are we filling our mind with endless Instagram reels or TikToks or movies on YouTube that take our eyes off what is truly the most important thing? It's such a gift, church. Church. This is why the Apostle Paul can barely contain himself in 2 Corinthians 9.15 when he exclaims, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. He doesn't even have the words for it. Maybe we aren't that thankful for our salvation because we don't think about it that much. This is a spiritual discipline of meditation. Not sitting in the lotus position, going emptying your mind and going, um. But thinking, meditating, over and over and over again of the goodness of God that he has given us salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Do we think about that? We need to think about that. We do practical things like put Jesus thank you on your playlist. Read God's word. Read lots of old dead guys. Watch good videos on TV. Cultivate thankfulness first and foremost in your salvation because a thankfulness for salvation will drive out covetousness. Our hearts are created to worship. And so in a sense, right, we're not going to say, again, don't shut down the desire because we're in the land of desire here. This is coveting is a desire word. So the answer biblically is not stop desiring. We've got to remember that. That's not what we're saying here because we were created to desire. So a desire in and of itself is not a sinful thing. Here's the trick, though. We have to desire the right thing. So we don't tell our hearts to stop desiring, but we tell our hearts to start desiring more of God, more of his grace, more of his word, more of the spiritual disciplines. It's unnatural for us to shut down our desires because we're created worshipers. But we're created most of all to worship our God, not our stuff. That's when it gets backed up. And we can see that everything has been given to us by God our families, our jobs, our houses, our possessions. One of my favorite services of the year, of course, is Thanksgiving service where we turn it over to you guys and everybody says thank you. And it's so cute when the kids get up there and they say thank you for my sister and thank you for my dog and thank you for my cat and thank you for everything else. And, and naturally we do those things at Thanksgiving and we should. But before we get to stuff, church, let's be reminded that first and foremost, we should be thankful to God for salvation. It's commanded in Scripture frequently in the Psalms in the Old Testament. It simply says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Ephesians 5.20 tells us to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we protect our hearts from coveting? Way number one, be thankful. A thankful heart is not a covetous heart. But we also need to cultivate trust, and specifically trust in God and a trust for him to provide. What is the opposite of trust? It's worry. And The Bible has much to say about worry. And Jesus himself has a big section that will be very familiar to you in Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Right after, by the way, in verse 19, where he gives us, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In verse 25, right along those same lines, he starts, "'Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, "'what you will eat or what you will drink, "'nor about your body, what you will put on. "'Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? "'Look at the birds of the air. "'They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, "'yet your heavenly Father feeds them. "'Are you not worth more value than they? "'And which of you, by being anxious, "'can add a single hour to his span of life?' And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, King Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What will we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those unsaved, seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Did you catch that? What are we anxious about? We're going to eat. We're going to eat. We're going to wear what stuff we're going to get. Anxiety fuels covetousness. Worry fuels covetousness. The opposite, Jesus says, is to seek first the kingdom of God, to trust God to provide. He says, do you not think he knows what you need? He provides everything for the whole world. Of course he knows what you need. We worry about our stuff, protecting our stuff, getting more stuff constant comparisons to others and of course ground zero to this is probably social media we fire that up on our phone and we see what everybody else is doing we see what everybody else is wearing we see how perfect their kids are and how wonderful their house looks and how green their lawn is and we we feel something inside we're like i I guess i'm not as good as they are I, i i guess i guess god isn't providing for me like he's providing for them and specifically in this case, church, to ward off coveting, we need to cultivate a heart that trusts in God to provide. When we don't trust God to provide, we're saying that we don't believe him. We're saying that you're not good enough to provide for me. It's like saying that we don't like the way that he is providing for us now, and we could do a better job ourselves, God. We covet because we want what other people have. Is a good place as any to throw in two caveats. And the first one is that we need to take responsibility for our own bad decisions. Right? We can sink ourselves deep in the mud with our own bad decisions. And then we can look to God to say, what's the deal, God? Well, sometimes we're just dealing with the consequences of our bad decisions. One man years ago became very angry with God. After a series of very bad decisions, including getting fired from his job, he held God hostage, saying angrily, "I need God to provide me with a six-figure job." why is He not doing that?" The man became angry, angry and bitter, nearly losing his family over it. He built up this lifestyle and he shook his fist at God to provide it for him. It's not the deal. It's not how it works. God provides for us, but not always in the way that we want or demand that he does. He's the one who built up his lifestyle like that, and when he lost his high-paying job, it was God's fault. No, it's not God's fault. We have to take responsibility for our own decisions, our own situations. We have to take those responsibility for our unwise decisions that have overly complicated our decisions, sinful, or situations, rather, sinful choices have additional complicating factors. And we can't blame God for not rescuing us from our consequences. But second caveat, and we're cultivating thankfulness for what we have, that doesn't mean that we don't try to better our own situation. right? I don't want to be fatalistic about this. I don't want to be like, oh, well, I guess I just have what I have and that's it. No, that's not what we're talking about here. If you can better your situation, there's nothing sinful about that. Build your business bigger if that's what's going to glorify God. Get the better job. Go to school. Do all of those things that you can do to better your situations. There's nothing sinful here about bettering ourselves, but rather, why would we do that? If we're going to do that just to make more money, to buy more stuff, well, that's coveting. But there's nothing sinful about wanting to better ourselves. And young men, be thinking, how are we going to do this? How, what, what are we going to be going to school for so that we can put food on the table, so we can provide for our family. Cultivating a thankful heart does not mean that we just have to resign ourselves to whatever subpar situation we might be in. A thankful heart, though, overall, is not a covetous heart. But third, and perhaps more importantly, we obey this command by cultivating contentment. Contentment is a rare emotional state. If we're being honest, who's content? No one. It seems like no one on the planet is content with what they have, who they're married to, the job they have, the content, whatever commute they have, the car they have. It seems like we are perennially in a state of unhappiness and discontentment. But rather, we're called to the state of contentment. And Paul quotes that most famously in the book of Philippians. In chapter 4 which many of you are probably thinking of already. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, says this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned, see that? I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty, and hunger, abundance, and need. And here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says that this contentment is not based on his external situation. It's not about having a lot or having much. It's based on realizing that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's based on Jesus Christ. It's based on that truth that will lead you to contentment in any situation. I often think of the trips that we made to Haiti or other third world countries, and you would see these children just living in absolute poverty and filth, and they were so content. Happy. It strikes you. Just like, look around, and they're happy. Why? Because they didn't know any better. Our problem in America is we know better. We look at our cell phones, and we see what everyone else has, and we see the opulence, and we see all of that stuff that everybody else has, and we're like, I'm missing out. That's what I need. That's what I need to be happy. It's such a lie, church. One author wrote, covetousness begins with a dissatisfied heart. Let a man become dissatisfied with the portion that God has given him, and he will be tempted with a thousand other sins dissatisfied people start looking around. They look around at what everyone else has and they fall for the lie that it could bring happiness. Kevin DeYoung again helps us and he says, when we covet, we don't believe that God is big enough to help us or good enough to care. Our discontentment is an expression of how much more we think God owes us. Anytime we start using language like that, that's dangerous ground. But yet, that's what we say when we covet. When we want something that we don't have, we're saying, God, you owe me that. You want me to be happy, don't you? This is why do not covet made it into God's law. Discontentment breeds coveting, and coveting says God owes us more. Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote the classic book on this, titled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. In it, he tells us to beware of filling our hearts up with the wrong things, and in so doing, it actually becomes an empty heart. Instead, to be content, we fill our hearts up with the goodness of Jesus. Again, it's not shutting down desire, but filling our hearts with the right things, filling our hearts with God. Because God is the one who is sovereign over all our situations to begin with. He says this, It is one side of a Christian to endeavor to do what pleases God, but you must also endeavor to be pleased with what God does. For he knows how to order things better than I. Certainly our contentment doesn't consist in getting the thing we deserve, but God fashioning our spirits to our conditions. Did you guys catch that? He says, you're looking at life all wrong. You're looking at the external circumstances and you're saying, that's what I need. If this external circumstance was just tweaked out the way that I think I needed to be, then I'll be happy. And God says, no, I'm sovereign over these external circumstances. What you need to do is fix your heart to match the external circumstances. Start there. Again, God's after our hearts. We're Americans. We're fixers. We're like, if I could just do X, Y, Z, then everything will be fine. And God's going, I don't care about X, Y, Z. I care about your heart. So why don't you try wrapping your heart around your situation instead of the other way around? Why don't you try adjusting your heart and your spirits and your desires to what I'm actually doing in your life? Sometimes you hear someone respond, right? when they're asked how they're doing, with this phrase, better than I deserve. There's a lot of profound truth in that. Because as Christians, we know for a fact that we deserve hell. So every breath that we take in grace is infinitely better than we deserve. Yet in Christ, of course, we have forgiveness. We have grace. We have adoption. We have joy. We have peace. We have a million other spiritual blessings. Contentment comes by allowing God to adjust our hearts to our situation not letting us try to tweak our situation to make our hearts happy. We submit to God in that. And we cultivate that reality that, yes, we are all better than we deserve as Christians. We obey this commandment by cultivating thankfulness, trust, and contentment. So where does that leave us? Well, we said the the first four commandments show us how to love God, right? We have no other gods. We don't worship idols. We don't take the Lord's name in vain. We honor God's day. That shows us how to love God. But the last six commandments, the second table of the law, show us how to love others. And we love others by preserving life, by honoring marriage, by stewardship and not stealing, by living lives of truth. And this week I'll say it, loving others means not coveting what belongs to them. Loving others means not coveting what belongs to them. We respect others in their possessions. We watch how we might be coveting, and we obey this commandment by cultivating thankfulness, trust, and contentment in God. Coveting is one of those sins that is prevented by cultivating the right soil in our hearts to begin with. Let's covet-proof our hearts by cultivating thankfulness, trust, and contentment in God. And in so doing, we love others well. But if we zoom out, right, because we're landing the plane here on the, the Ten Commandments today... This last commandment is a blueprint of what the law is actually all about. And so as this is our last week in the Ten Commandments, I wanted to talk more about the summary of the law itself as we close because it shows us the law, which is unable to save, merely points to how sinful our hearts are. And the Apostle Paul uses this exact commandment to teach that lesson in Romans 7. Go to Romans 7. In verse, um, in verse seven, it says this. So what shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been the law, had not been for the law, I would end, would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, "You shall not covet." But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin died. Sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it it killed me. So the law itself is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. We said way back when, and Paul mentioned one of the purposes of the law today, We said it was a map. It shows us our way to sanctification. It said that it is a muzzle that hopefully stops us from doing sinful things or saying simple things, but it's also a mirror. And when we look at God's perfect law, we see our sin. And that's what Paul's saying in Romans 7. He says, guess what? The commandment said, do not covet. And our sinful hearts went, covet? That's a great idea. I think I will. I think I'll look all around me at everything else, right? Because we know that it's impossible to not covet and so we covet. And the law can't deliver us from that. Paul says the law actually awakens sin, coveting in our hearts by telling us don't covet. It's like when you tell your kid, like, don't touch that. They're going to touch that. It's going to happen. Same thing, spiritually speaking. God literally brings out the sinfulness in our hearts in the law to be the very one that provides salvation for when we are convicted of our sin. So today's bonus big idea day today here at Highlands. Two for the price of one as we land the plane. We, I, I, every time you guys think about God's law, you need to think about the gospel on the other side. Because it brings sin, but the gospel brings forgiveness. And so the series big idea would be God's law makes us aware of sin and our need for a Savior. God's law makes us aware of sin and our need for a Savior. And we see that again in Romans. If we were to keep going in Romans chapter 8, you can't get to Romans chapter 8 without getting through Romans 7. Listen to these words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God that we're not held to these commandments, and if we fail, which we all do, we are condemned forever. Praise God that he knew that the law couldn't save. Praise God that he knew that the conviction in our hearts would make us so obviously sinful and so obviously understanding that we can't possibly not covet. And were it not for the grace of Jesus Christ, we would be lost. And praise God that he provided Jesus Christ. Jesus who fulfilled the law perfectly for us. And through faith in that, we live a new life. Now that, church, is good news. And if you don't know this good news, that's the reason we're here. So please talk to us. If you've not yet understood that, if it's not yet clicked, talk to somebody about that. But church, for us, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Apart from Jesus... We are all blasphemers, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, liars, and coveters. But in Jesus, we have been freed from the law of sin and death to walk in newness of life. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love. We thank you for the complexity of your law, but the, the simpleness in which it convicts us, God. And of course, that conviction is, is not fun. It's painful. But in that, Lord, you show us our need for you and you show us your grace and how you've provided Jesus Christ our Savior. So, Lord, let that be the motivation. Let us resist coveting in all its forms, but let us remember that you have gone before us to provide a way of salvation and let us walk in the newness of life. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.